in the work, and the only way that we can do that fully is to read. So, but I know that some of you are really busy, and I said at the very beginning, I don't want you're not reading to keep you from coming. It's just, but when you can read, the experience will deepen tremendously. The study guide will help, but any reading you do will will take you to greater depths in your heart and in your mind. You'll just see so much more. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at what Faulkner's doing in this, and I. I've let the cat out of the bag once, I think. This is the only work that I know of in the modern world in which we see God at work. And I'm going to leave that. I mean, I don't want to get there. We'll get there. But I, I'm just amazed at what he's doing. <laughs> Truly amazed. And I'm sort of pleased because when we set out, we set out with the idea of trying to find Christ where we couldn't ordinarily see him. So it'll be interesting to see if you see him when he's not immediately obvious. Um, but anyway, we've got that ahead of us. Um, so next week we'll jump thoroughly into the, man, uh, the mansion. This week I just want to um, make a few introductory remarks about the mink section just to get you going you know that what I wanted to do today is um, save the time so that we could take up those questions that I asked last week. <clears throat> and I'd like to say now in advance about what we do towards the end of this class because I'm, I'm going to throw the questions out in a way that I've not done before. And I want to take some care here, so I've got a couple of requests. Um, the questions that I'm going to ask uh, are going to cut close to a bone for lots of us because it's going to deal with things that we deal with in our families and friends. Um, you know that one of the great problems in the town is that everybody's implicated in those sins and nobody does anything about them. And those are things that are part of our lives every day, I'm assuming. Sometimes we don't do things about things we should and then we suffer from them. And sometimes the things that we do do make things worse. So. It, it's, we're going to get into a touchy area here, so I'd like to ask that you, all of us, be careful of each other. And I've got a couple of rules, okay? Um, black eyes and bloody noses are okay. I'm fine with that. So long as you administer first aid afterwards. Because I'm a little bit nervous that this may get wild today, but I don't know. We'll see. Anyway. I'd, I would just like everybody to take care because it can be really delicate. We, we don't always know what's going on in the heart of another person, so. So we'll get back to those questions shortly. But I, what I want to do is, um, is get us started on the <coughs> mink uh, section. First review. I have been trying to get a hold of Marcy, and um, I think she's ordered the books to have faces. So we should have, I, I don't think they're here, but they may be in our office, I don't know. But we should have them shortly. So, kick it, Tom. <laughs> I was going to say, I shouldn't have said that. How's your, yeah. How's your toe? As soon as I said that, I thought, oh, you may break a toe.
So you were, really you were serious <laughs> about those bloody noses. <laughs> and toes. Um, God, where was I? Um, when we started out together, we, we, we committed ourselves to this reading with the idea that there was something prophetic about it. And you know that um, why I've chosen this literature. The claim that I've made is that great works of literature, the very greatest, always reveal something of God and something of ourselves to us. This, this literature is prophetic in the sense that it helps us to see things more clearly that we don't see very well. I'm hoping that's been true all along, that Melville taught us to see some things, Faulkner is helping us to see some things that we don't generally see very well. We're becoming more aware of um, qualities to our culture that are not very attractive, if I can put it that way. So, literature is prophetic in the sense that it helps us to see more clearly things that we don't see, and very often it shows us things about ourselves that we don't want to see. Um, if we're not reading to identify ourselves with every character, and you, <laughs> including Phlegm, um, then I don't think we're reading well. And I've used as a support of that Dante's Commedia, because you know that what Dante is doing by going down into hell first before he goes up purgatory is um, showing us that none of us can make that climb to purgatory if we don't learn to see our sins. And you know from the Inferno, those of you who have read it, that the sins are really grotesque. And that if that's an image of the interior of the soul, which it is, then there are lots of dark things in the soul. And it, it sort of underscores what we've been doing in the town because you know the town is very respectable. Who wants to see? I don't have the sense that anybody in that town has a very clear vision of the sorts of things that we're talking about. You know, the, the sins are pretty grotesque and ugly. It's a very respectable world. <clears throat> so literature is prophetic in that sense. We've talked about the enveloping action um, and we see that a number of ways we've um, we saw it in the town, and um, we see it more clearly in the mansion, because in the mansion, everything that takes place in Jefferson takes place in the context of radical changes going on in the world, everywhere. Um, Gavin sets out for Germany with the intention of going to the university there. He's loved German romantic culture, particularly the music. When he gets there, he discovers something, that the Germany that he comes to is not the Germany that he once loved, and he ends up going to France. So we become aware that um, the world's changing. It's not just the South. It's, it's uh, America's undergoing a change. Europe's undergoing a change. We've entered into a modern world, and it's leaving um, individuals um, in a condition of being displaced. Traditions are being lost. We talked about it, that in The Sound of the Fury. It's not the same world that it was. And once those traditions go, particularly the courtly romance tradition between men and women, what's there to take their place? I mean, how do men and women relate? I want to come back to that because you know that the sexual relationship, um, the sexual relationship between a man and a woman has been fundamental to almost all the works that we've been reading. What we discover is one of the effects of the fall have left men and women with these 
profound difficulties in dealing with each other. So marriages carry a lot. And I think everybody knows that marriages are in trouble today. I mean, marriage, it's, being married is, a, is a, just a much greater struggle today, I think, than it was 100 years ago. Um, <coughs> what can I, um, we also see, um, as one aspect of the enveloping action, how much Flem Snopes influence is, is expanding. Because we learned that the Snopes are now not just owning businesses in Jefferson, they're becoming senators and representatives in the state government. And it's really clear that Flem has control of them, that these people who are supposed to be representatives of the people are actually working under the direction of Flem. He has this extraordinary power. So, or Will Barner. Hmm? Or Will Barner. What about that? Uh, the Clarence Snopes is that they're Yeah. Say again. Clarence Snopes. Yeah. The one who wants to be senator. Yeah. Both of them. I mean, it's clear in the um, in some of the later chapters in that Mink section that um, that Flem's influence is extending. Um, he has control of the blank bank. He he puts out loans. People are in debt to him. In, in a sense, what we're seeing in miniature <coughs> is an increasing weakness on the part of humans because they, they become dependent on a financial system. I hope that's clear. Is that clear? <coughs> that, that there's a complicity at large because the modern in the modern world, people have become dependent on a certain system. So they're less likely to risk their lives or to risk their jobs. They may lose everything financially. The, the world is, is defined so much in terms of money. So we're watching this corruption that started in this little hamlet grow. And now it's expensive. It's a part of everybody's lives. It's, it's what everybody grows up under. That's Plato's cave again. It's one of the defining terms of the American place in the cave, if I can put it that way. <clears throat> Did I read those two poems last week? The, can you take a look at the at the Blake and Hausman poem? I I think you got it a week ago. They're very short. They're just passive. They're two short poems. I want to read this passage from Louise Cowan's book on the lyric. Did I, I didn't do this with you guys, did you? Oh, did I read it? I read this? Okay. I told you about the essay in there by somebody you may know that. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm not, we're, we're not getting royalties in this, but you might enjoy that. So it's called, it's called the lyric, the prospect of lyric. Beanard Cowan is the, and Louise Cowan are the editors. So I read this last week. Okay, so you remember that um, in using those two poems or passages from them, what Louise was attempting to do was establish the nature of the lyric. And you know from our work today that the lyric tends to go to the interior of man. Narrative goes out from the interior into a larger world where events take place. Um, 
what she's claiming here is that the, the lyric is situated between two poles. One of them is a nostalgia looking back for something we've lost. That's the garden. We've been talking about that forever. And the other looks forward to the New Jerusalem. Um, that while we're here, we're displaced because we lost that garden. We carry the fall with us. But we look forward to recovering it and, some, according to the Christian view, something more. Because we know from Paul that, that um, when humans, and we know from Dante's Divine Comedy, when humans enter the paradise, their bodies change. There's a glory that humans being um, realize when they come into the presence of Christ. There's, the, there's those lines in the Bible where, where he says, we should. We, <clears throat> we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I can't remember if that's Matthew or... But it's clear that we won't come into the presence of Christ until we're like him. That's why purgatory, and that's why that whole, we have got to go back and, and we will not be in his presence until we're perfected, to be like him. And I've been claiming all along that our work here on earth is a purgatory, that that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be rent, repenting, taking on those sins, overeating, overdrinking, being um, covetous, um, 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 being slothful. Remember all the sins of the um, purgatory? The, um, the, the rage, the wrath, the envy, the, the pride. Those are all the sins we're supposed to be doing away. That's, that's our work here on earth. Um, what Louise is doing in the opening is making clear that the lyric is established between these two poles. And I've, I've been suggesting that that lyric presence, is at the, that lyric spirit, is at the center of the novels that we've been reading. All of them look back, all of them look forward, all of them are trying to take us into the present moment in a, in a better spirit. So they're all trying to answer disorders. Um, <clears throat> let me just, Bev, do you, have, do, you, do you have that poem? Does anybody, yeah. can I? Let me just very quickly read these. I'll just read the poem. This is Blake's from Songs of Experience. Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where the sunflower wishes to go. All things are moving in accord with the sun, the way a sunflower does, but all of us, in a sense, participate in that movement as we try to move forward. And the sun for us is not just the physical, earthly sun, it's the sun, God, the next kingdom. Houseman, <clears throat> this is from Shropshire Land. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue-remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. Just looking back to those blue-remembered hills, that's an image of an Eden lost, that all of us have this nostalgia to return to what we've lost to recover it. 
<clears throat> and I've been suggesting that um, that that spirit of an in-between lyric spirit has, uh, is at the center of the town and the mansion. And remember, when we got towards the end of the town, there were those passages when school was let out, the boy was sent away, the town empties, and then there's that long, what do I call an elegiac sort of section where Gavin meditates on the beauty of Jefferson. It's very lyrical and it's elegiac. We have a sense that something's going to happen. We, if, if we're reading it for the first time, we don't know, or probably don't know. And then a couple chapters later, we get the news, Lyndon's died. And I, and I suggested that there's, you look, that um, I raised the question whether something providential is if, it's like the spirit descending over a town to prepare it for something that belongs to that town. That this is not just Eula and Jefferson, when she dies, Jefferson shares in that death in some way, not just in being implicated, <coughs> she's of her. It's like a hero coming home and a town coming out to, to honor a hero for dying. So there's this strange lyric mood that settles over that work towards the end. And we're going to find it again with Mink, because Mink's going to be in jail. It's not going to be, I mean, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. He's looking back to a lost time. He's looking forward. When he finally does get out of jail, and that won't happen until the phlegm section, he's still in jail when, we, when the mink section ends in the beginning. At the very end, in the, in the mink section, he gets out of jail. It's one of the most beautiful passages I've ever read in literature. He step, imagine being in a, looking back, he, he goes to jail in what, 1908 or somewhere around there. He gets out around in the 1940s. Imagine a man living in the world in 1908 and coming out in 19 mid-40s, stepping out into the dirt road is no longer there, it's paved. He's looking for familiar signs, they're all gone. A world war has taken place. Two world Yeah. He goes to Memphis and can't wreck it's a blazing lit up town. It was not the rustic town that he knew before he went into prison. So he's stuck in, in between worlds. And I've, got, I've said this before and before, you know, after we read or took, looked at some passages from St. Augustine, St. Augustine says we are, we are a peregrine people, a peregrine people. Um, we're moving, we're in exile, we're on a journey. If we ever get too settled to feel like this is our home, something's wrong. Because what literature, this, the prophetic literature reading shows us is that somehow we should be in motion. Our soul should be moving forward. God has called us. You know, we should be partly going home in everything we're doing. So at the heart of these books is that tension, that lyric tension, looking back to a world lost, moving forward to something. What's our call? How do we answer it? Um, are we responding to God moving forward or are we stuck? particularly in a world of respectability, as Faulkner's been, because he's, he's, I hope it's clear. It's so easy to get comfortable in that world. So comfortable, as a matter of fact, that you sometimes don't do the things that you should. So here we are. Um, and the last thing, looking back to the town, one of the questions that I asked 
in the last couple of weeks, is Jefferson standing under judgment? And that seems like a pretty harsh question, but let me flesh it out again. You remember in Dante's Commedia that Dante shows us the Venetian, Italian, European world against final ends. Everybody's in hell or everybody's on the way to heaven or in heaven. Those are final things, right? The value of that work is that he shows the, the final condition in which man will rest because of what he does here. What he does here, he's going to carry into the next life. So he's teaching us to look at our actions and the consequences of them. We see exactly what our actions lead to because they're laid bare. They're set against final ends. That's clear, right? There's no disguise. Is that clear? In, the town, in all the works that we've been reading, we've been moved into a temporal world. What's going on here? That world is not set against final ends unless it's a great work like Melville's or Faulkner's. It, it's the world as we see it daily, as, as we live it and experience it. Um, so Jefferson isn't presented against final ends. Jefferson is just laid out as we look at a town in our own temporal existence today. That's clear, yeah? But the question is, um, because of the plot and everything that happens, we see that everybody in that town is implicated in a sin. And it's adultery, and according to our belief, that's a mortal sin for 18 years. Everybody's complicit in it. Nobody does anything about it. And the, in some ways, I think Linda's, Eula's suicide is in some ways meant to be an indictment of that world, that something's wrong with it. If respectability has as one of its ends the protection of women and children, then we have to say in some ways it fails. We know Linda's lost. We learned that from that discussion between Gavin and, and Eula. There's nothing she can do. Um, when, when Varner comes into town, Despain has to leave and so does um, Eula. And we learn later in the mansion that the only reason Flem was not asked to leave is because Varner was trying to protect Linda's name. So it's an impossible situation. If she, Linda stays, she's with a father who doesn't love her and a lie. If she goes, she goes off with an, adult, an adulterous couple and a lie. Again, there's nothing to do. <clears throat> Linda's answer is to take her life. Eula. Sorry, God, Eula. So in some ways, everything that happens at the end um, intensifies our, the questions we have about the town and how much it's implicated in this sin. Yeah? Are we together? So, um, and the people we see, I mean, that's, for, for me, that one of the beauties of this work, you know, is that it, it's not, I, I compared um, the town with Golding's Lord of the Flies and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, in which cannibalism exists at the center of it. It's a horrible, horrible thing Marlowe discovers in Africa. On the surface, it, it's, Faulkner shows us a very respectable, good world. The people are good. Maggie is, a real, I think, a really good woman. Charles in some, I'd like to strangle him, but he's, you know, he's a decent man. Chick is good, Ratliff good, um, Gavin's good. Um, we see very human people. Hampton commits a sin when he goes into the, you know, the, the Montgomery Ward's girly place. 
but he's still, a, I mean, we know he's a good man, even though he fails in his job as a night policeman. They're good people, and Faulkner is equal to the task of showing how good they are. We laugh at those scenes. They're funny because they're very human. But underneath that humor is this dark world. What, and it would, I think it was Sue's, that quote that I missed, but that she called, she reminded us of that. I, I want to, I'd probably go to it here, where I think it's Chip describing the response of the town and half the town wanting to see the sin exposed and the other half wanting to keep it buried. And they talk about, he describes the town in terms of a spirit of judgment of that couple being an abomination. Just the use of that word is, sends shivers up my, you know, how forgive, that, that's, that, that's that passage where Chip describes the town forgiving itself, forgiving them and forgiving itself for being such an abomination. How forgiving can a town be when you use that word to describe what you're looking at? It's just, so, um, so, what do we do with this? I mean, I want to come back to the, this is where we were. This is where we were. How do we look at Jefferson? Is it a town under judgment? Faulkner's laying it bare, and there's a lot about the town that is a cause that seems to me a real sorrow. It's failing in some ways. And the cost of its sins is it's a woman and a mother. There's no place for her and um, she's got concerns about her daughter. I suggested too, when I was um, offering my thoughts on this last week, that it's really interesting to me that this town lines up so closely with Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Remember that Scarlet Letter, which to me is a founding work, 19th century, it, it goes to the crisis in America. At the heart of that great, great novel is adultery. Um, the two people involved are the minister of the community and Hester Prynne. And the minister won't step out because if he does, it's going to condemn the whole, the whole community. He, he hides. She has to bear the sin. Um, women, women have a harder time hiding because their pregnancies show. Men can hide. Dinsdale's a minister. And I suggested that the end of that novel answers that problem. But it's really interesting to me that, that Hawthorne sees marriage in trouble, particularly in its adulterous form and in a community. And the community's response to the adultery is nothing but condemning. There's no place for forgiveness. And that's what we see. That's northern. That's in the north. This is southern, and that's Faulkner's subject in the town. So Faulkner's going, again, to the heart of a problem seen in universal terms because it's going to marriage the relationship between a man and a woman. But in, in looking at that, he's uncovering problems that are, I think, universal, that are, that are there for all of us. Um, a town, a community being implicated at the guilt, what do they do with it? Um, and, and maybe even indicted by Eula's death. Um, and that's where we're left. It's a pretty dark, it's a pretty dark story. Okay. Um, I want to come back to this because I really want to open that up, but that's just a quick review. Um, I, 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 let me just say a word about man and woman because this is a sort of general overview. Once we get past this, we're going to do C.S. Lewis and we're going to be beyond these things. 
One of the things that I suggested in the last couple of weeks is that men and women carry the effects of the fall, all of us. Marriage does a couple of things. One of them is that it puts us under law. It's, it's, it's always been interesting to me that the couples who live together don't put themselves under law. They can leave. There are no consequences. They can part. They, they just live. It's really interesting that sometimes when people get married and live under law, they have struggles they never had before. So one of the things that marriage does is it puts us under law, and the law can be harsh. We have to hold to something even when we don't want to. The other thing for those of us who are Christians who believe in it is that it offers us a grace. In the Catholic Church, you marry, you're, you marry in the Mass. You identify yourself, your husband, the man and woman identify themselves with Christ on the cross. You enter into his sacrifice. So in some ways you're acknowledging that you're going to bear a cross in your marriage. Better or worse, better for worse. The modern world doesn't believe that. The modern world believes everything should be comfortable. If, if you're not comfortable with your husband or wife, you tell them to go. I mean, and it's usually the other person's fault. You know, that, because we, we don't have any place for dealing with sin in the modern world. When you, you get, you know, you're romantically involved for six months or a year and you get married and you think everything's okay and then you start confronting each other's sins and it's a completely different story. What happens when you don't have the grace or the example of Christ to deal with those sins? So marriages are in trouble. Just a, a brief look at men and women. Um, because it goes to this question, why didn't people step forward in this town story? After the fall, when man turns away from God, the love that was directed to God gets turned towards himself. And remember, it's infinite. God created an infinite desire because the object of it was an infinite God. Yeah? So it had a natural object that could satisfy it. When man turns away from God and he's left with an infinite desire, where did, where, what will satisfy that desire? It's mostly for himself then, there is no God. He'll turn it towards a woman and a woman towards a man in an idolatrous way because they'll expect something of each other that they can't give, they're not God. I hope that's clear, yeah? So that we, we inherited that from the fall. It's a, it's a huge disorder, it's a deep, deep disorder. Um, and we can see the effects of it. Um, the typical sins, as we see them in the literature, for women are a vanity, cattiness, possessiveness, even a meanness. Um, something. Men and women are both selfish. But if you go back to the short stories particularly, the, the failings of women, possessive, catty, they don't listen to husbands, you know what I mean? go back to all the stories. Um, what am I missing here? If you think about Leona, the sister, the grandma, an innocence that's not real. Remember the grandmother looked at herself as being innocent. Those are some of the things we've seen in the women. In the Faulkner world, what's interesting, the women are almost universally self-sacrificing. I mean, there's something nurturing and devoted um, in the women. On the male side, there's this male vanity, lines of pride. I mean, that's the fundamental sin for both men and women. And some vanity attached to his manliness. 
um, to do manly things. So um, the failings we see in men tend to take the form of being discouraged. Now, remember that word, because if you're manly, you're supposed to have courage. When you fail in your courage, it's discouraged. You lose it. That men seem given to that when they're facing failures. Women deal with despair differently. Men do it differently. Remember, are you all following discouraged? So, so when men get discouraged, when they're not as noble as they think they should be, they turn to drinking, drink to death, gamble. I mean, what? Um, they're quick to be proud in fighting. Remember, Quentin is always jumping into a fight, even if he's failing. His father drank himself to death. Quentin over-idealizes everything. So does Gavin. Um, Gavin's like Quentin in lots of ways. They both, they're quick to fight as men of honor. They, and, and Mink is very serious about honor. And if you remember, one of the most exemplary scenes, I think, is that scene between Mink and Houston when Mink comes to get his cow and Houston won't give it to him and, and Mink makes that comment about, well, I see you've got a gun. And Houston's response is, here, I'll put it between us, step back and see. There's, I mean, I, I shudder when I reach that scene because you can see male pride holding to that honor at the point of dying. So we're watching, the, the, we're, we're seeing the disorders that are a part of the male-female relationship as one of the consequences of the fall. I hope that was clear. Was it? Okay, okay. So, um, so, so much of that is carried forward and it's a part of the background of what's going on in this story because at the center of it is Eula and Despain. They're in an adulterous relationship. They've stepped outside of a respectable world. Gavin is the only one trying to defend Eula. He tries and he's the only one who tries to take care of Linda. So there's a male-female relationship that runs through everything in this book. And as you know, Gavin is this courtly romance hero. He tries to be noble. He misreads everywhere. He, he doesn't, it's funny to watch him. He's such a good man. I, I still admire him, but he just misreads everywhere. He carries that forward and things are going to get complicated because Linda goes off with Gavin's encouragement, goes to Greenwich Village. She marries a Jew. They go off to the Spanish War. He gets blown up. She loses her hearing and she comes back. And here's what's really important. She comes back as a new woman into a South and she brings with her this New York Greenwich Village experience. She's deaf. Um, um, she's almost in some ways the exact opposite of her mother. She's a welder. She goes off to a shipyard. She's a, a war veteran. She's not a stay at home. You know, the, what we're watching is this change taking place in the world, that people are displaced. Linda's coming back as a displaced woman. Um, and it's, <coughs> it's going to be interesting to see what happens between her and Gavin, because everybody's been saying all along to Gavin, marry her, marry her, and Gavin is refusing, and, and she comes back a widow. So she's free to be married again. And so at the center of, of these stories, is this fundamental relationship between men and women and what's going to happen. So that's central here. When the town opens, the focus is on Mink. 
and you know that it, it opens at that point where he's in the courtroom, the, the judge is trying to get his attention and keeps looking for um, phlegm. And in some ways, Mink stands outside this respectable world. Now just hold on to this. We've seen in this story that the respectable world has failed to deal with phlegm snows. In every respect, it's, it, it has not dealt with it. Phlegm, in some ways, is above the law. The law can't catch him. Everything he does is hidden. He hides behind respectability. He uses it. So the respectable world, in some sense, is impotent, <coughs> absolutely impotent. It, it has done nothing. Mink stands outside of this world, and curiously, in the opening, we see that he started by looking for Phlegm to save him, and finally reached the point of realizing he wasn't going to come. And then he, his attitude changes. Then he becomes angry, and eventually he gets so angry that he will want to escape and kill Phlegm. Um, we see the incompetence of the law in the trial. The lawyers are bumbling lawyers. Um, what we see here only amplifies what we've been seeing all along. The, the law, in some ways, is incapable to deal with things. Mink holds himself under a code of honor. We get the story between him and Houston. Both men of honor. Mink, in some ways, more. He's poor. He's susceptible. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to look at some of those passages in a minute. One of the fundamental themes at the heart of the town is is um, this theme having to do with what Mink calls they or old moster. Um, when the story begins, Mink sees himself in relation to this, what he calls this they, or he, or old moster. His view of God is closer to the pagan, the ancient pagan sense of a destiny or a fate. There's something impersonal, manly, harsh, and inhuman. Um, and he keeps talking about this they in terms of um, they they're, they're somehow unfair in what they expect of me, but I'll be manly enough to do it because if I'm manly enough, they'll have to be manly enough too. And so he holds himself under this strict code of law. Um, and we have to watch what happens to that because that's a major, 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 major theme. It's, it, what Faulkner does with it, I think, is amazing. So those are some of the important things to keep in mind as we move forward. I, what I want to do is just read a couple of passages from the opening and then I'd like to stop and go to those questions that I want to take up. Um, let's go to the beginning. First page, page three. The jury said guilty and the judge said life, but he didn't hear them. He wasn't listening. In fact, he hadn't been able to listen since that first day when the judge banged his little hammer on the high desk until he, Mink, dragged his gaze back from the far door of the courtroom to see whether Flem had come. You know that he's always looking. A couple of interesting thoughts on Mink. The opening's really revealing. Um, it's really clear that Mink has no sense of law. None. 
the, the entire time he keeps expecting Flynn to rescue him. He has no sense of a system of law at all. Why? Because he's a primitive, an itinerant farmer. He's uneducated. What defines his life is what the ancients would have called family ties, blood ties. That family takes care of family. You don't turn to the law. You live in a family world. That's the world that Mink lives in. It's really important to see that. And eventually, when Flem doesn't come, it's important to see what happens. His natural conclusion, because he lives in that world, is to demand a blood price. That's the term that we first used to talk about Achilles. You know, in the ancient world, when somebody, a family member was killed, somebody in that family had to step forward and avenge that debt. That is to exact the blood price. Is that clear? We live in a police state. We've tried to take that personal element out by creating a, a police state so the police, a legal system, takes care of it. That keeps the passions out. Mink doesn't live in that world. He lives in that ancient world defined in terms of family ties and a blood price. So when he, when he finally realizes that Flynn wasn't ever intending to come, there's only one thing for him to do. It's to, take, to get back at him for not doing what he should have done. Okay. Um, page five and six, the bottom of five. Um, it talks about these immutable laws, mink waiting, and then it says, he had not forgotten that his cousin would not be there. He simply couldn't wait any longer. So it's not yet that he's discovered, it's that he's still waiting, but he has to do something meanwhile. He simply couldn't wait any longer. He had simply to trust them, the them, of whom it was promised that not even a sparrow should fall unmarked. So part of this is New Testament, but the whole spirit of it is Calvinistic Old Testament, the, the implacable power of the law. The them of whom it was promised that not even a sparrow should fall unmarked. By then, he didn't mean that whatever it was that folks referred to as old moster, he didn't believe in any old moster. He had seen too much in his time that if any old moster existed with eyes as sharp and power as strong as he was claiming he had, he would have done something about it. Besides, he, Mink, wasn't religious. He'd been at church, he hadn't been at church since he was 15 years old and never aimed to go again. Places which a man with a hole in his gut and a rut in his britches that he couldn't satisfy at home used by calling himself a preacher of God to get women. <laughs> that is, religion is just a cover-up of your appetites that you hide behind in order to get. So there's that respectability again. Um, so Mink has no fondness for religion, and he's only turning to them in, in some sense because Flem hasn't come, so he has to do something. So these, this them comes into his life. Um, On seven and nine, at the bottom of seven, it began in the spring, no, it began in fall, and he goes back. We get the backstory that we never got in the hamlet. There was that day when Mink was walking along the road and, and Houston drove by in a stallion, almost killed him. You know, Houston, that big, beautiful black stallion, stallion killed his wife. Um, Houston lives with this sense of power that he can impose his will on people. Um, he doesn't care about people almost runs him over. Middle of eight, um, we're, we're informed that Mink's cow didn't freshen, so 
so it wouldn't produce milk that year. The, the graze was bad, so he didn't have the, the feed for the cow. They didn't have money. He was at a level of absolute poverty. He's got a wife and children. Um, there's nothing he can do about it. He goes to get his cow once when he's missing. This is what's really interesting. There's no premeditation. It's really important to see that. He goes to get his cow, and he sees the cows grazing, and for an instant, it suddenly hits him that if he leaves him there, the cow will graze, he'll, and then he'll freshen, he'll be fine. So the, he, he didn't premeditate it, he wasn't planning, it's as if he took advantage of the circumstances in his poverty. But then it gets, then it gets worse, because you know that um, the cow stays there, um, people ask about it, he lies to cover it up. Um, when the season's over, he goes to get it, and this is where things turn um, really bad. On page 17, Mink comes with his rope, prepared to pay $8 for the cow, even though he knows in his mind it could, it could be double that. And Houston won't give him the cow on page 17. Um, at the bottom of page 16, um, Mink starts to climb the fence to go inside the enclosed area to get the town, and Houston says, hold it. Don't cross that fence. Well, well, Mink said, one leg over the top rail, the coil of rope dangling from one rock, red hand. Don't tell me you bring a pistol along every time you try to buy a cow. Maybe you even towed it to put a little cotton seed or grain of corn in the ground, too. I'm trusting everybody here is both of these men are very proud. Mink is not going to back down. He, even though he's used um, Houston's land illegally, he's a proud man and a man of honor. So is Houston. So Mink is going to have an answer to everything Houston says, no matter what it is, because he's, he, he is not going to be humiliated by another man any more than Houston is. It was tableau. Mink with one leg over the top rail, Houston standing inside the fence, the pistol hanging in one hand against the leg, the Negro not moving either, not looking at anything, the whites of his eyes just showing a little. If you had sent me word, maybe I could have brought a pistol too. <laughs> Wrong thing to say. <laughs> but what else is he going to say? All right, Houston said, he laid the pistol care. I mean, you can see this. The, neither man is going to back down. Even if even it comes to, um, what do they call it? A, a duel, you know, in, in where two men would walk paces and shoot each other. Uh, maybe I could have brought a pistol too. All right, Houston said. He laid the pistol carefully on the top of the fence post beside him. Put that rope down, get over the fence at your post. I'll back off one post and you can count three and we'll see who uses it to trade with. Mink backs down at that point. He goes in to, to, to clear things up with Varner to see what the law says. They bring out appraisers to appraise the value of the cows, and once that's established by law, Mink has to pay Houston. You all, you all know this, so we're... He has to pay $18.75, if I remember, and to do that, he has to work 38 days. Um, 38 38 days, I think. It's close to two months. Um, when Mink talks about it, going through all this stuff, you know what happens. Um, he starts to work and um, lets go his own plowing, preparing his own field. 
And it's interesting to see what happens then because me, as a man of honor, he is determined to satisfy the law and in his mind to satisfy the them that he sees over things. So he goes to work and is working without doing his own land and he's an itinerant farmer. Varner owns the land. Varner comes with a cow and says, um, take this cow and I don't want to see you, you know, um, go home and, and take care of your land. He refuses. Houston comes with the cow and says, take the cow. It's, it's, you know, he won't do either. He's too proud. He's, he's under an indictment. He wants to show his goodness by doing it even though what he's doing is in his pride. Both men offer the cow. He refuses. And Varner gets on him because if he lets his land go, he, he, Varner's going to suffer as the owner of it. So he tells him to go home and work the land. And so he ends up, Mink ends up doing both. Working his land, building the fence. Um, he finally completes the task. Um, it's an impossible task. He's almost not sleeping. And then he goes to get the, the cow. Take a look for that. Take a look at that. Um, on page 27, it's a painful scene. It's so, it's so real. He keeps imagining that the, the cow is going to be brought to him because he feels like now it's owed him. And then he realizes when it doesn't come, he has to go get it. And when, when he realizes that, it's as if he becomes terrified for a moment. Um, it's the humility you feel when you've been living in your pride for so long that what you're left with is humiliating and leaves you frightened, but he has to go do it. So he goes to get the cow on page 27, um, uh, um, arrives at Houston's place and says, Morning, Zach. I came, I came by for that air court judgment cow. If you'll kindly have your nigger to kindly put this here rope on her, if you'll be so kindly obliging, and still leaning there while Houston came across the lot and stopped about 10 feet away. You're not through yet, Houston said. You owe two more days. It's at that point that Houston informs him that there was a pound fee that nobody... Uh, Mink is furious, humiliated, really, because he's, he's felt all along that Houston had this land, this wealth, he could have grazed the cow with no loss to himself. But the, but the result of it was this humiliation that Mink has had to endure. Um, he goes to, um, to find out that the pound fee is uh, lawful, Varner gets furious because he knows what's going to happen, but there's nothing he can do. It's at that point that Mink goes home, finds the shells, goes to town to buy fresher shells. Ike McCaslin, whom we know from Good and Moses, won't sell it because he knows something's wrong. Mink intends to go off to Memphis and spends the night at the uh, station. Um, um, on the way there, when he took a ride with the carrier, he discovered he lost his money and he assumes the carrier stole it. We're not sure. And then he gets a, a ride back um, from the same carrier, goes home, um, and then goes to a stand uh, by the, the bend in the road where Houston um, comes and his trips into town. And um, standing behind, hidden behind this stand, he hears the hoofs of the horse on the bridge, and then he prepares it. It's been three days that he's sitting there because he didn't know how long he would be there. This on page 43. 
It might not have been the third day either. In fact, he couldn't remember how many days it had been when at last he heard the sudden thunder of the hoofs on the bridge and then saw them, the stallion boring, frothing a little, wrenching its arrogant, vicious head at the snaffle and the curb both with which Houston, Houston rode it. The big, lean hound bounding along beside it. He cocked the two hammers and pushed the gun through the porthole. He fires, hits Houston, and then says, I ain't shooting you because of them 37 and a, and a half four-bit days. That's all right. I don't long ago, I done long ago forgot and forgive that. Likely Will Varner couldn't do nothing else. Bring a rich man too, and all you rich folks has got to stick together, or else maybe someday the ones that ain't rich might take a notion to raise up and take it away from you. That ain't why I shot you. I killed you because of that air extra one dollar pound fee. I want to stop here. That's the beginning um, of the mink section. A, a lot happens here, and we'll, we'll start next week. Just a couple of thoughts. One is, I think it's really important to see mink as a representative of the poor, um, uneducated. And it's hard for me to look at him without thinking about what's going on in our country, even today, you know, with, with uneducated, particularly black, Hispanic, immigrant cultures that have grown up under this blood tie, blood price culture. They, they couldn't turn to the law, they had no education. What Mink is showing us is what happens to a, a man who is impoverished, who tries to live a life and, and finds everything about his life oppressive, even the law. So that there's, in his mind, there's no recourse, there's nothing for him to do. Um, he's humiliated. Um, um, Houston has no sense of the dignity of a human being, none. All he cares about is his sense of his own power. So he has no scruples about putting a screw to this guy. So in Mink, we've got an image of an uneducated man. He hasn't had the education that all of us have had. Um, he's insulted, humiliated. As a man of honor, he wants to do something. He does it. He fills the letter of the law, and when he comes back to collect the count, it still isn't enough for Houston. So on the basis of that, he shoots him, and, and as you know, he'll go to jail, and he'll keep waiting for phlegm. So it's important to remember to, to set these two things next to each other. We've been living in a world of respectability in which people live by codes of law and manners. Mink belongs to that same culture. It's the same southern culture, but he's an itinerant poor farmer. He, 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 he will never see the day, if, if he'd never gone to jail, he would have never seen the day when he would have gotten out of that condition. He would have remained poor, dependent, at the mercy of things. There's that one passage where it describes all the contingencies. The weather wasn't right, the grain didn't come, the cow didn't freshen. That is what we're seeing is a man who is um, at the mercy of contingencies. He cannot rise above them. We, as a people, tend to do everything we can to rise above contingencies. We've got contingency accounts. Suzanne and I have a contingency account. You know, we, we, we've reached a point where we try to protect our comfort by, Mink will never see that. He will never see that world. He, he knows nothing about it. That's the world of respectability that we just left. So we've entered in, like um, Benji, so we've entered into the mind of somebody at the bottom of that rung who, who will have no chance to ever get above it. He will live at the mercy of necessity his life. 
So if there's a dignity to a human being, this man has no sense of it. Certainly not from the way people treat, it, treat him. Certainly not from the way Houston treats him. And you know from, from since we've done the Iliad that, my, that the opening class on the Iliad was, while all these men are fighting for booty to show how good they are to acquire all this booty, which is very modern, what we're learning through Achilles is that there is something greater than that. There is this innate dignity in man, and that world lost sight of it. Here we are back in that world. People want money, they want comfort. Here's this man struggling. The, the, the cost of this respectable world is this man ignored, who's in some, in some sense trampled on by the way he's treated by Houston. So we've got a respectable world on one side and the world of this itinerant farmer at the mercy of all these things that he has no ability to deal with at all, except to just farm and do the best he can. So Faulkner's taking us to a very real situation here in America with the poor, the immigrants, and a respectable world and the way they don't come together. And at the, at the core of it is Flem Snopes rising, making his life self-sufficient and so that's where we are. Let me, let me stop. Any, any comments or observations or questions before I turn you guys loose? I'm going to turn you loose and then I'm going to take Suzanne and run. <laughs> any, Are any, you running or is she running? <laughs> any, any questions? or What's coming is really extraordinary, I think. It's, it's wonderful. What happens with Mink and Linda and Gavin? And it's, a, it's a really good story. And behind it will be this question, is God in this story anywhere? Is Christ in it anywhere? But that's to come. Any any questions or I have a comment. We'll pick up with the minks. So next week we have four chapters. We just covered the first one roughly. We'll do three, four, three, four, five, three chapters. One, two, two, three, four, five, four. I think it goes up to five to cover it. And we'll do all of them next week. My 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 comment is that um, I see Mink was not classically educated, I mean, he wasn't. However, he had a certain sense of street smart about him because when he, he didn't intend necessarily to take advantage of Houston, but that's exactly what he did and he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Because when the, the season came over and he wanted to go and get his <coughs> cow back, what did he do? He created this lie. Yeah. And well, he told the lie, he, too. Yeah. He did. He told the lie. That, that he had sold it, and then this guy came back, and he had to give him eight bucks. And so I don't see that he is this innocent. Mm -mm. He's not. No, he's not. And so um, I, think, I, I think you have to be careful about that, because both men, well, make, uh, make set up the situation where he caused this. I mean, he absolutely caused it. Yes. And then he, he tried to get, take advantage of Houston, and Houston caught him at it. Mm -hmm. And the consequence was something that he didn't like. Yep. Now, do I think that Houston was ridiculous in saying, you owe me another two days of work? <coughs> yeah. I mean, that was yep. crazy. Yes. Um, but it, it, it's not that it was, he, Mink set this in motion, and there were consequences to what he did. Yes. 
Yeah. That's my only comment. No, but it's good. I'm glad you did that too, because I, I think I was trying to present the positive, but yes, yes, yes to all of that. Yeah. What makes it even worse on his side is when he goes into town and somebody says, what are you going to do about that cow? Nobody misses anything in this community. Everybody knows what's going on. His response is to lie in town long before he ever gets to Houston. And when he, when he goes to pick up the town, Houston's aware of that lie and says, I thought you, you know, sold it, and he lies again. So, yeah, what I want to do, though, is just underscore the impoverished condition in which he lives, the humiliation of it, the degradation of it, and that one of the things we have to say about Mink, with all that you're saying that, that we can't ignore or minimize, is that there's this dignity to humans and we become aware of how oppressive it can be to a human who lives at the level of necessity the way Mink does. Um, Houston could have been more forbearing. He's not the kind of man to do anything like that. He's just too, too, uh, too rigid in his, mm -hmm. his own sense tried. of power. But he tried. He when was going to get some level, but he tried. You mean when, by bringing the, the combat? Yeah. yeah, right. I yeah. mean, he's, he basically tried to call it off, and then when Mink wouldn't that it was a test of will who's going to be the stronger yeah. narrative right. on next part. Oh, both. Yeah. I don't think there was just arrogance that part. Yeah, both of them. The, the difficulty with that situation, I mean, I, I yes to everything, but don't hear a difference at all because everything you're saying is right. Is one of the dangers is when you're put in that situation and, and it's humiliating is that once somebody offers something like that, it can be seen as condescending yeah. that, that that person's above you. And if you're trying to hold on to your dignity, you know, it's a, it's a, what it, the beauty of this situation to me is that it's so human. It, it shows there's a real law here that's been violated. It has to be answered. But the way Faulkner treats it is to show these enormous failings on both sides. They but a portion. Huh? Need right. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true. No, it's true. It's true. That's why you think this yeah, and there's no Porsche. There, no, in. Frenchman's Bend? <laughs> and and Varner's? In, is Varner close to a port? God, no. not... God. You know, and, and also, I just... I've, in, in trying to maintain your dignity, there is an element of pride. And I, and I think that is... That's what it was. Um, he was trying to maintain... Mink was trying to maintain his dignity, but he also was just proud. And he was he was not going. And to. he was yeah. trying to show up. Huge. He was. Actually. Both of them are trying to. Yeah. 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 And that's why that that gesture on the part of Varner. I mean, this, this goes to the complicity issue so much. Varner brings that cow because he knows things are going to blow up. Yeah. That that the, the, the arrogance of these men is everywhere. I mean, you can't miss it. Varner doesn't do that out of, I mean, Portia. Varner doesn't do that out of a sense of justice or goodness. No. Houston doesn't do it out of a sense of, he's condescending to do it, and he's trying to avoid a problem. There isn't the selflessness on either side in any of those gestures. What you're seeing is pride in men that won't move because their dignity is at stake either side. And the men who do make those gestures are condescending. I mean, they're not doing it. They're not doing it for, Mer for Mink's good. In some sense, everything they do is self-interested. So no matter how you turn it, without a Porsche, without somebody who's disinterested, you're not, there's no way out of the situation. It, it's just, it's going to get violent, and that's what happens. And I'm glad you said that. There is no Porsche in this world. 
as we know it. And it actually goes to the question that I'm going to get to now. Can we leave this? I want to, I want to throw out these questions. Sure. Okay, here. Here are the questions. Um, the questions that I asked you guys last week were the, the two basic questions. These are catechetical. And I hope you all are careful here. I was serious in what I said before. Be careful here. I really would like everybody to... Bloody nose and black eyes are okay, so long as you... But take care, because these, are, these can be sensitive. This is a sensitive issue. The, the whole town's complicit in what happens between Spain and Eula. Everybody knows it. Nobody, nobody does anything. Um, Eula um, wants Gavin to marry... Linda to get her out of it, Gavin will send her away. I'm not sure that either of those options will save her because it, it still avoids the issue. Um, there's that passage, um, it's on page 356, it's the one I mentioned earlier, it's the one that Sue mentioned, that's to me is so Oh, I didn't bring the towns. Anybody have the? Yes. Can I, can I borrow it, Bill? Thanks. Sorry. Three, I think it's 356. Isn't that funny? If you guys had my book, you'd want to turn it back because mine has got mark. I mean, I, I make a bloody mess of mine. Yeah, at the bottom of 356. So now they even forgave Mrs. Snopes for the 18 years of carnal sin, and now they could have even forgiven themselves for, and now they could even forgive themselves for condoning adultery by forgiving it, by reminding themselves, one another too, I reckon, that if she had not been an abomination before God for 18 years, she would have reached the point where she would have to choose death in order to leave her child a mere suicide for a mother instead of a whore. How forgiving does that tone sound? <laughs> Not very. So, and, and you, you've got, thanks, Bill. You've got that passage uh, that we looked at where um, Linda comes to Gavin and asks if Flem's her father. And you remember she says she, um, it, when she thought that he wasn't, she hated them because she thought her father had done a good thing for her and she thought they were doing wrong. But when she d discovered that he was her father, she hoped Eula would have love in her life um, because she looked at the marriage as a loveless marriage that her father had married but without loving. So she's lost. There's nothing to do. Eula's response to all this is to take herself out of the situation, whether that was the right way or not. But in some ways, it seems to me, it's, it's the, in some way, if I'm reading this correctly, it's the inevitable result of what happens. There's no place for her any longer. She seems to be looking out for her daughter, even though that's a, that's a questionable way of doing it. But in some ways, the sin never gets dealt with. It's not answered. She dies. The town mourns. They have to look at something now, but still it was never dealt with, and a person's gone. So we're, we're shown a town that's complicit in a sin. Nobody stepped forward. So my question, the two basic questions that I had were, could anybody have done something different? Will Varner, Eula, Gavin, any, Mary, or I mean uh, Maggie, who was a good woman, could anybody have done anything different? First question, okay? 
that's a speculative, I mean, you know, we're in a hypothetical word then, but look at it as a, as a case study to, to learn from. Could anybody have done something different? And the second question or set of questions is, would anything have been different if there had been a Catholic church, a Catholic community in the town? Um, and I want to be careful here, but, um, but I take that, and we're here, this is a catechetical class. I know this is a case study, it's, you know, we're in fiction, but there's a value in doing this. If a Catholic church had been in town, a Catholic community, would something else have been different? And if so, how or why? That goes to questions about our own understanding of our faith and the nature of a church in a community. Is that clear? I want to take the second one second, so I'd like to take the first first, okay? Could anybody have done anything differently given the nature of this town? And if so, what? Right now I need wine. <laughs> Bev, get with it. Will you, what, why, where's the wine? You're, <laughs> You're failing. Don't pick on Bev again. <laughs> Are you kidding? Has there been a week that's gone by that I haven't? <laughs> I think the town should have been less judgmental on these two people who loved each other for 18 years. <clears throat> Obviously, it wasn't a valid marriage. He, it was. It wouldn't have been valid in the Catholic Church. You're oh, you're talking about Fleming. Yeah. Ah, okay. That's yeah. not a valid marriage. Yeah. She married her for her inheritance. They didn't love each other. She found love. I'm happy that they had each other for 18 years. Yeah. By the way, you. I hope you just don't remember. That was Gavin's response to Caraway. Do you remember when he got really angry and said nothing for 18 years of devotion, fidelity, that Gavin saw a good in that relationship that pe he was sorry people didn't make a place for. And he said, a devotion of fidelity not coerced by the law. Say that? The fidelity was freely given. There was no... Yeah, they didn't have to stay together. Yeah. yeah. I think that uh, it all starts with Will, Barna, you know, forcing the, the marriage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, back then, divorce wasn't the... Uh, the what? Uh, divorce wasn't as prevalent as it is today, but divorce would have been the answer in this case. She should have married to Spain. Would that have been... Why wasn't that an option in this town? It was hard to get divorces back then. Well, and Flem didn't want to lose his... No. Yeah, I, I don't see Varner or Flem consenting to that, either man, and they're the ones who hold the power. And in some ways, they sort of image what's, what's behind the respectability of everybody else. I mean, that, that, that what's expressed in them is what everybody else holds themselves to, and I can't see Varner or Flem. Uh, Flem's not going to allow that, and he's got too much power. Varner's not going to allow it. They wouldn't consent. Um, Flem's doing everything he can to keep them there to keep power over them. I mean, he does nothing that doesn't benefit just him. Example of the law being used uh, uh, unjustly. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Anybody else? Francis, where are you on this? Could could anybody have done anything differently? 
don't know. Without God present, I'm not sure anybody had the strength to do it. Well, what an interesting word. Does that take us to the second question? <laughs> what, what, that implies something. Is it, are we, oh, is it okay to go to the second one? Explain, wait, wait, can, explain that, would you? Well, I think our faith, hopefully, if we have a strong faith, we wouldn't have been so judgmental. We would have been more forgiving. The town would have been more forgiving with our faith and maybe have helped, you know, uh, them to be forgiving. I mean, the affair may have gone on, but our faith teaches us to Everybody has sins and be forgiving, not so judgmental. Okay, let me to help let, people work through their weaknesses, not to judge them. Let me throw this out. But wait one second, Debbie. I think no, that's okay. First. Go ahead. Let me um, let me just throw this out to see what you do with this, and then Sue or Debbie, whoever's. According to our faith, according to Dante, I mean what we learned in the Commedia. You know that the great struggle that we have as one of the effects of the fall is to bring love and law together. And you know that mercy without the law is a disaster, it's enabling. We've gone through this before. So it's easy to talk about being compassionate and you know, forgiving and overlooking things, but the question is, is it enabling if you don't do something? For the law to be real, there has to be teeth behind it. There has to be consequences and punishment. If you have the law without mercy, you've got something harsh and inhuman, All right? So remember, in the purgatorio, everybody, in hell, people got the law, they got, they got justice. In purgatory, people had to answer the sin, they had to repent to conform to a law with the help of mercy, so they're going. By the time they get to heaven, they're in a state of forgiveness. Bliss, blessedness, yes? Is everybody following? Thomas said mercy without the law is disastrous. It'll be, do nothing but produce confusion. We live in a society in which we like to think we're being compassionate, but very often we do it at the expense of undermining the law. How do you bring the two together? This is a great problem. Jefferson's answer to it is to ignore it. And let me, let me just bring a scriptural event to bear in this. The men brought the woman in adultery out to stone her to death. She was an adulteress like Eula. Christ said, let he who is without sin throw the first stone and apparently forgave her. But he said, go and sin no more. What Christ did was fulfilled. I just, this is so important for us catechetically. What Christ did was not against the law. There would have been no, no meaning to what he did. He came to answer the law because we were under judgment by it. He didn't undermine it. He didn't do away with it. He went to a cross. Going to that cross was a way to fulfill the law. But he brought divine love to that act. So what he did in a perfection is bring love and law together. Law, as we understand it as Catholics, is really important because its ultimate source is God. Law is a reflection of reason, God's reason. The natural law tradition has its ultimate source in God. So does love. They're not at odds with him. 
they're at odds with us. Um, hold on. So, when the law goes against God's law, we should be opposing it because we know that there's another law that's in accord with his law. So we believe slavery was wrong. It should have been abolished. I mean, how we handle that could have been good or bad. And we believe that homosexual marriage is um, contrary to God's law. It's using reason to justify something that goes against God. So in, if we're complicit in that, if we're supporting not doing anything about it, we're complicit in a wrong. Because some, very often society makes bad laws. They don't stand in that natural law tradition. We believe that law should, be, or should have their ultimate source in, in divine law, as it's revealed in Scripture, and in God. Is that all clear? That's really fast. Human laws should have their source in divine law, Scripture, and ultimately God. Because reason is from him. So is love. So part of the problem is bringing love and law together. So we, it's easy to say be compassionate, be forgiving, but how do you hold somebody responsible for violating law, particularly when it's a mortal sin? And it's interesting because you threw a loop in it because you said, you know. But adultery, living together, outside of marriage, is wrong. So, so if nobody does something in the first question, I mean, what's, what, is there something anybody could have done? Is there anything anybody could have done or should have done in a Catholic world? If there had been a Catholic church, would it have been different? Could we have expected something different? That world's not present in this world. But could we have? Sorry, but Sue, oh, go ahead. Okay. I'm not going to quite grant that last statement, but okay, if that's what you believe, that it would have been different, then I'll... No, I'm asking. Okay, but I think what Mary Jane said at the beginning comes closer to it, and that is, if the town had been willing to confront the wrong, but knowing what had started this whole mess, because they knew that, if they had been able to confront it and simply say, this isn't right, get a divorce, leave the guy, go get married, it would have acknowledged the sin. There may have been some price to pay for it, I don't know what, but it yeah. would have acknowledged the sin and provided a, a mercy way out. Because everybody understood exactly what she said. Except here, I mean, well, I thought... not everybody, the guy that moved his money. I, I mean, <laughs> anybody else jump in here, but I, my, the, the concern I had about that is, it, it's easy to say that verbally in my head, your head. If, if somebody had confronted them and said, Wait, wait, wait. Would would Varner would Flem have would Flem have allowed it? Would would and I'm really serious now. Would Eula and Varner have acted on that? Maybe not. But then that's her request choice. or whatever, however you want to put it to them. Would they have done it? Part of the trouble is they don't confront Flem at all. Nobody confronts Flem. Right or Varner. Right. Well, okay. but you know nobody's confronted Flem from the very beginning. Varner was there at least. Let's just take, let's say, let's pick up your, I mean, you're, this, these are all concrete, these are hypothetical. If somebody came to Eula and to Spain and said, what you're doing is wrong, stop. Um, Eula, get a divorce. Would they have done it? Let me, anybody, wait, wait, anybody else? Would they have done it? Debbie, why? I don't think so. I think, I think that we're, we're trying to put uh, 2018 sensibilities on 1907 or 19 whatever it was and, and I think that the culture 
yeah. wouldn't have allowed it. I agree. They, they just wouldn't have. And because from, from an individual person, that is what their truth was. That's that is the way they they um, uh, that's the way they behave. That that is how they conducted their life. It is based on <coughs> on this culture. And anything that was going to happen that was going to jeopardize that, they were going to go out the back door. They weren't. They they couldn't. They didn't have the courage or the acceptance from anybody else that, to say anything. So now, if they had had the courage, would it have made a difference? Is the question? I don't, I I don't think so. They would have been run out of town. No. No. I don't think. I don't think it would have made any difference in the action. I'm sorry. I don't think it would have made any difference in the action, but it would have made a difference in motivation. Well, if you look Wait, at explain that. I'm not. It it would have made. See. It would be in the open. Oh. The problem is, this is all just under the bed sheets, you know, in <laughs> multiple ways. <laughs> Once you bring something out, it's there. Now you can't completely ignore it in the same way, or if you do, it's intentional. But what did you mean by motivation? It wouldn't change the motivation. She said it would change the motivation. No, it, it, yeah, it would change the motivation. I mean, it would change... <laughs> It then has to be an intentional thing that everybody is complicit in. And, and the actions then are intentional. Now, who are you talking about, the community or, or you on this thing? Both. Flesh it out because I'm, I'm getting lost in this suit. Somebody comes to them and says, stop it. Okay. And but now they can do this. Everybody they, knows Eula and Despain can have their affair. Everybody knows about it. Nobody talks about it. So everybody puts up with it. Once it's out, this whole pride thing is exposed. I think motivations of people, I think intentions of people. If they go on with it, that is, it goes back to this question that I was raising. If, you, if the whole struggle we have is bringing love and law together, and it's out in the open now, but it's an un unlawful relationship, and, and nothing's done about it, um, it seems well, like you're back in the same the complicit situation again. There's a lot of assumptions that they're not going to change. What, what, if not, you, and the town's not going to change, or they're not going to be ostracized. I thought that's what you were saying. I said it's possible that they wouldn't have. But to me, that changes the whole dynamic. It's no longer hidden. It's no longer a festering sore. It's now an open But still, it raises the question. What do you do about it? If it's against the law, if it's, against the law it's not their business. Whose business? What? Town's business. Well, it would be now. <laughs> Marriage and a, and a, people and a, should not be buttoned into other people's business. Even if it's unlawful. Marriage is not in other people's business. I mean, we understand marriage is, a, is either a public or a sacred. That's your law. But that's not everybody else's law. Well, it is in the it is in the book because everybody takes it seriously. That's why. Well, you talked about the Catholic Church. I, if you were there, but you already have a quote a Christian culture. You got a bunch of Christian churches there, but mm -hmm. they're all over the place, and they're not confronting it. Right. This is a Christian country, but does it act like a Christian country? No, that's state in the so. town. Yeah, but I mean, what do you? If if and which Christianity are you uh, going to follow? Well, right now, let's just stay with the the, the Christianity. <laughs> My question is, if you confront them. And I mean, everybody knows about it anyway. Let's say you confront it, and you somebody goes and you say this, and and they continue doing what they do, um, 
and it's unlawful, what, what do you do? Because there's two things to be concerned with. One is love, whatever marriage or and law. There are civil law or yeah. church law. Yeah. Both. In this book, they can't be separated. We've got to, I've got to be careful of time. In this law, they can't be separated because it's a Christian community. They see it as God's law, adultery is wrong, and that's why that this whole problem exists the way it does. This table is really quiet. Mike? Yeah, uh, for what? <laughs> I think Father put it very eloquently this morning in church. He says that when people do not put God first, everything goes out the window. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what's happening here. You can be a Christian, but if you do not put God first, like Father said, it's, it's almost irrelevant. What's going on in here? Perfect example of what goes on if God is not first. Now, if God were first, what would they do? They would start confronting that aspect. And if they didn't respond to the confrontation? Well, then they're a part of it. No, no, if the people, if you go to Eula and, and to Spain and you confront them, then yes. what? You don't well, have any control. At least, wait, well, wait, remember wait. What, remember what uh, Jesus said, is that, or one of the apostles said, if you do not confront the sinner, you are a part of that sin. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, that's exactly what should have happened, because if you don't confront them, you're a part of it. Yep. Yeah, can we go to this? I'm, I'm, I'm still not satisfied. Fred, do you? I think we're trying to fix this. If we're going to fix it, I think we're fixing it at the wrong place. Go ahead. Just, you know, I heard Father Clinton say this. I heard Father... John Stasiowski says this. Sin creates a ripple, and that ripple just continues to grow and works its way, works its way through yep. the community, if you will, in this case. If you're going to fix this thing, you've got to fix it. I mean, because the ripple's rippling, and if you go in there and try to figure out how to fix this thing at the, the Spain Eula level, it's not going to work. It's just going to split off and go off in different directions, and maybe it's a different timeline, but it's still going to go. If you're going to fix this thing, you got to go, well, really, all the way back to Eula, maybe growing up in a Catholic environment, she doesn't have... Not growing up in a Catholic environment. It, it, no, I'd say if she was growing up in a Catholic environment, then maybe she wouldn't have had sex out of wedlock. That's where it all began. I don't know. <laughs> but, okay. Thanks. You know, moving on. That has not been my... That has not been my... The <laughs> when Barner made the decision to force yes, his daughter exactly to have a, right. a marriage yeah, that right. didn't have anything good about it. And if the community had come in at that point and said, don't do that, you know, let's try to help her a different way, then, then you could have kept this whole thing from, from happening, maybe. But if you try to fix it, you, you got to fix this at the Hamlet level, not at the town level. Yeah, but once you, but let's just say. And when it, it gets fixed at the mansion level, it's all going to be retroactive anyway. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, for a second, let's just for a second, because we know we enter a world with sin everywhere. We, we enter, we're born into a culture. By, by, let me put this on your terms too. Let's say we're born into a Catholic culture, but we're born into a Catholic culture in which even though people are Catholic, they're having sex before marriage, because I'm going to say that goes on anyway. 
So we enter a culture in which this stuff is already, the ripples already turned into tsunami waves and everybody's affected by them. That's what we can hear. What do you do at, my question is, what do you do at that point? Could anything have been done differently in Jefferson the way it is? And you let the wave hit you and then pick up the pieces and put it back together. Let the what in? Once the tsunami is coming at you, oh. there's not a thing you can do. It's over. You swallow it up. Well, we live in a culture where... So then you pick up the pieces and you start all yeah. Christianity and the culture are at odds. How is that done? Go ahead. And the thing is, you can confront it, but you don't have the power to do anything about it other than, you know, say something. Yeah. So I have a question, and it's really an important wait, cause, question. Wait, because, wait, did you want to add anything to that, or were you it done? Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So if I feel that a friend is in danger, or their soul is in danger, or, you know, feel strongly about it. I would pray, and I would do what I thought was right, what I, the best I could do at that point, and I would trust that somehow God could use that. And I don't have to have all the answers, and I probably wouldn't do it alone. I would probably try to get some members of the community so that it's not a one person, not a mob. But you know, I, I guess my belief is, I can't do it, I can't change that town, but God can, and if I believe that. You need to live to do it through you. Through maybe, and, and you know, I don't presume that that's gonna be the way, but, but I don't see why not saying anything isn't worse. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're all in agreement on that. try very hard yeah. to do what's right means you're going to just probably affect a ripple and you're going to have some pushback from it. But, I don't, you know, I, I, so you say what would change? Well, it's been confronted now. It's been said. And that word makes a difference. And it would make a difference with Yuba and to Spain. Maybe not right away. Maybe over time. Let me throw out an example here to, because it, it still goes back to this question of law and um, I mean, I think what Don said is is true that there, there's some, there seems to be some way in which Christianity and the ethos of the community are at odds. They don't, they're um, in some ways not living up to the Christian community or call. Um, and go to Catholicism, this question of Catholicism, just for a second, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, so, but... If our call is to bring law and love and mercy together in any genuine sense, there's no way to do that if we don't see that the law is futile, if there's no teeth behind it. If you say to a son to stop doing something and the son doesn't do it, presumably you stand behind it and you say, sit down, time out, you're ungrounded or you know whatever. If your words to your son are stop doing it and you don't do anything about it, then you're complicit in the sin. I mean, you're, we're back where we were. A law that doesn't wait down. Let me. I'm just going to. It's going to take a minute. So give me a minute Define here. Let, give Give me a minute here. Um, if you don't stand behind it in some way, then you're undermining yourself, or somebody will be undermining it for you if you're not together on it. The law has got to have teeth. There's got to be, or the law becomes futile. 
Dante says that, the Pope says that, God says that, everybody says that. A, a law has, has, to be real, a loss has to have consequences, a power to affect it. Dante says in the Commedia, rightly, and this is the Catholic tradition, talking about the Pope, when the Pope was the head of the state, when they got so embroiled, he said, when, I can't remember, I've got to find that passage and bring it, but he said, the function of the Pope is to chew the cud. His work is contemplative. He's got the, the, the ultimate salvation of a soul. When he takes the place of Caesar, and he takes power away from Caesar, he undermines Caesar. And Christ was really clear in that. Given to Caesar, what Caesar got. He's recognizing that there's a temporal order with its own autonomy, its own nature, its own ends. The church has always been superior to that. And look, this is really interesting. The Jefferson town is in some ways a buried theocracy. It's Mrs. Varner who chooses the ministers. The, 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 the church is so embedded in a temporal order that it can't separate itself out. I hope that's clear. She chooses the ministers. Who is she going to choose? People who go against her? I mean, take a look at what's going on. The, church is, the Catholic Church has always maintained that there's a temporal order with its own autonomy, its own exigencies. The church is above it because it has its, the end, the salvation of the soul. That's not the business of Caesar. Caesar has to enforce the laws. So the problem I'm talking about here is bringing Caesar and the Pope, if you will, together. The call of the Catholic order is holiness, to separate from the world, to be holy, no matter what the world does. And it has the help of the sacraments to be more Christ-like. You talked about strength, and you talked about courage. If you had a friend, let's say your, let's say your son, Son, daughter, let's say a friend. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I may have to get really honest here for a minute. It's going to scare me. But you've got a friend who's sleeping with another woman, and they're not married. He's a close friend. Um, and you're doing what you're talking about. Go to him and confront him and say, you shouldn't do that. Is that enough? Let me, let me. Or should you say, hypothetically, should you say, I love you. You're a dear friend. Um, my wife and I can't come to your house anymore and you're not welcome at ours. You have to stop this. If you, ever, if you ever decide to get married or want help, or let's say it's drugs, we can't visit anymore so long as you're on drugs. You're welcome to our house, but not so long as you use. If you need help, I will be there. I will go to AA meetings with you. You do all you can, but if you don't put a line somewhere and risk yourself, will it ever be enough to say to another person, stop. Because what you're doing is undermining the law and yourself. So I'm going back to my problem. Whatever we inherit, because we can't go back to the beginnings, we inherit messes all the time. The question is, do we have the courage to stand behind something, to give a force to the law and love? Because we usually separate them. To love means you're nice to people you don't. If you've got, if you've got a son who's addicted and he's on drugs, um, it, what do you do? I mean, at some point you say, you can't stay at the house anymore. Or, I mean, something has to happen that you put teeth behind and love, because we tend to separate them to, to love somebody is to be nice. I hope I'm clear that, that the difficulty that the church presents us with is a great one. And the question that I'm faced with here, is it made harder by a, by a religious order that's so embedded in the culture that it can't separate itself out? 
The church as we know it is an order above. It's sacramental. The call is to holiness. It's to leave the world so that you're willing to risk a friend. I mean, Mike hit it on the nail. If you don't love God more than anything and you love your friends more than God, how much enabling will you do in your life? Can you, do you ever have the martyrs do it all the time? Will you ever have the courage to go against yourself with respect to a wife, a husband, a son, daughter, a friend? Because if you don't, you're so attached to that person, you won't do the things that you should do. We become dependent. I mean, I'm going back to the beginning of our talk. We become dependent on a culture, and without knowing it, we become crippled, weaker, less capable of doing hard things. So Faulkner doesn't give us an answer here. He's left us with a dark situation. But to me, it's real because it seems to me that's a picture of, of America at large. What's our position as Catholics? It, it seems to me that if we're taking it seriously, we, if we don't love God more than anything, if we don't have the sacraments to help us, we will never have the courage to do harder things, which means enforce the law in love and mercy. You know that it's much easier to enforce the law and then condemn self-righteously. That's what the townspeople do to judge somebody. To, to put somebody in the law and say, stop doing this and continue to love them? Harder thing to do. Because the force that it takes to say to somebody, get out of my house, makes it harder to love them afterwards. But isn't that, isn't that what we're called to do? So that's where that's where my mind is going. I don't know where you guys, if anyone wants to respond to that, but well, to me, uh, what Gandhi said, "I like you, Christ, but I don't like you, Christians," <laughs> seems to be true here. That basically, uh, he saw, you know, Christ as something to uh, uh, live up to, but most Christians aren't doing that. Yeah. That's the indictment of Christianity, I think, in today's culture. We're, quote, a Christian nation, but we don't act very Christian in many of our endeavors. Yeah, one, the only problem I have with that myself personally, Don, is I agree with that completely. You know that from all the comments that I made, that the veil has fallen over Christianity, it's fallen over us. What I don't like about that is there's a um, pacifistic side to Gandhi that wouldn't make a place for the severity that Christ had. Because Christ, Gandhi wouldn't have done some of the things that Christ did. Like to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Throw the money changers out in a fury. Or say to the woman, go and do that no, no more and mean it. That there, Christ is God, Gandhi's not. Christ reveals things about God that Gandhi could never, never get close to understanding. Um, Christ had to go to a cross to satisfy a law. What I'm suggesting here is that. It's something beyond Gandhi. We're asked to fulfill the law and not ignore it or undermine it, to understand that very often we're complicit in undermining it and love while we do it. That's what he did. That's what we're asked to do, to have the courage to do that. Men go to war and fight a war because laws are broken. They die. Martyrs die. We have, in the Catholic Church, we have martyrs in front of us all the time. The saints are called up every day. Why? Because they've they deal with these hard realities. Joan of Arc wasn't nice. She was a warrior. She's a saint. St. Francis was not a warrior. He's a saint. 
Christianity holds contradictions together. A fighter, a lover of birds, and you know, the, um, Christianity holds things together. It doesn't make it, in, in the Catholic. It does not make black and whites what they are to the rest of the world. We're asked to pull those contraries together. It, it's the central task we face, it seems to me, and make them holy because there's a sacramental character to what we do or should do. Let's stop, unless anybody's got. We start with Mink, who is, who is going to be a two-time murderer and not liked by all the respectable people in Jefferson. See what we make of them. Did you all get the study guides? Because I think you'll find them helpful.